Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Andrew O'Neill. I'm director of the Griffith Asia Institute, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here this evening to our second Perspectives Asia event for, uh, for this year. Before starting, I'd like to acknowledge the presence of the following people here this evening. Uh, Sahanya Rafael, who is the Deputy Director, Curatorial and Collection Development at the Gallery of Modern Art here at the Queensland Art Gallery. Uh, Russell Storer, who's the uh, Curatorial Manager of the Australian Centre of Asia-Pacific Art at GOMA. Uh, Mr Shinya Machida, who is the Deputy Consul, the Japanese Consulate here in Brisbane. Uh, Mr John Rochelle, who's the State Manager of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Professor Michael Powell, Pro Vice-Chancellor of the Griffith Business School and uh, Cheryl Stanilovitz, who is uh, State Manager at uh, Austrade. I'd also like to register the apologies of the Griffith University Chancellor, Ms. Lenine Ford, and uh, Griffith's Vice-Chancellor, Professor Ian O'Connor. There's a series of public seminars developed and presented by the Australian Centre of uh, Asia-Pacific Art here at the Queensland Art Gallery and the Griffith Asia Institute Perspectives Asia explores issues of contemporary culture, politics and society in our region. Once again, I'd like to convey my deep appreciation to the Queensland Art Gallery and the Gallery of Modern Art for their ongoing partnership. From its inception, Griffith University has been focused on and engaged with the Asian region. By promoting knowledge of Australia's changing region and its importance to our future, Griffith Asia Institute seeks to inform and foster academic scholarship public awareness and considered responsive policy making. Perspectives Asia occupies a very special place in achieving these objectives. Today, Asia is in the throes of major change. Not since the late 1940s, with the advent of a unified China, the coming of the Korean War and the dawn of decolonisation, has the region confronted the prospect of such a radical shift in its geopolitical balance. China's steady rise to great power status is occurring in a context where the United States seems unwilling to share primacy in Asia, and there exists real potential for tensions between Washington and Beijing. For Australia, this presents unique challenges, given our security alliance with the United States and China's status as our most important trading partner. India's concurrent rise and its increasing importance to Australia economically, politically and strategically, has opened up a dimension of discourse about a new Indo-Pacific age in Australian foreign policy, one where traditional ideas about the Asia-Pacific being the extent of our engagement in the region are being challenged. How the region's rising great powers, India and China, interact in 21st century Asia will be a defining issue for Australia. Confronting a similar period of rapid transition among Asia's great powers in the late 1960s, uh, Hedley Bull, who was Australia's foremost international relations scholar of the 20th century, wrote that middle powers in Asia are likely to view their own interests as best served by the preservation of an equilibrium among the three or four great powers. Bull continued, they are likely to feel threatened by the domination of the region by any one great power and to regard some measure of checking or balancing of each by the others as the condition of their own security and freedom of manoeuvre. So Australia has been here before. 
Tonight's speaker knows the acute challenges facing Australia in, a, in the strategic realm in the 21st century better than most. Rory Metcalf has had a distinguished career in the Australian Foreign Ministry as a senior diplomat and a strategic intelligence analyst with Australia's Office of National Assessments. He served in Australia's High Commission in New Delhi and has been seconded as part of Japan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. During his time in government and since leaving government, Rory's made a substantial contribution to three landmark reports on nuclear arms control and disarmament. The Tokyo Forum, the Canberra Commission and the International Commission on Nuclear Nonproliferation and Disarmament. Today, Rory is Director of the International Security Program at the Lowy Institute for International Policy. He's also a Senior Research Fellow in Indian Strategic Affairs at the University of New South Wales and an Honorary Fellow at the Australia Institute, uh, sorry, at the Australia India Institute at the University of Melbourne. Rory is also, much to my pleasure, an editorial board member of the Australian Journal of International Affairs. Rory's published widely, including with a highly prestigious US National Bureau of Asian Research and the International Institute of Strategic Studies. He's widely recognised as one of this country's leading strategic commentators. In fact, he has a publication record that would make many academics blush. The title of Rory's talk this evening is Grand Stakes, Australia's Future Between China and India. And I ask you to join with me in welcoming him to the podium. Thank you so much, Andrew. Um, I'm um, a, bit, uh, a bit embarrassed by all of that, but, um, but, there, but there you go. It's a, real pleasure, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here tonight. There'll be a few reasons uh, for that that will become clear in a, uh, in a moment. Now, I'm certainly attempting to uh, address quite a large subject tonight, uh, Australia, China and India, and uh, your presence here uh, assures me that uh, it's the right subject, it's an important subject. What I have to say in the next 30, 35 minutes or so, we'll draw on my research at the Lowy Institute uh, and at the University of New South Wales, uh, institutions that I think like uh, the Griffith Asia Institute have long recognised the relevance of Asia's rising powers to Australia's future. This, also, this work also draws on a publication uh, that Andrew's mentioned for the National Bureau of Asian Research in the United States. I want to pay special tribute, though, at the beginning uh, to, in particular, my, my hosts here, uh, two sets of hosts, I guess, Griffith University uh, for its foresight in establishing the Griffith Asia Institute and its seriousness of purpose in keeping the Institute uh, thriving under, uh, under Andrew O'Neill's excellent stewardship. Um, I can assure you that uh, the Griffith Asia Institute plays no small role not only in contributing to the national debate on the big strategic issues, but putting Queensland on the map in, in that debate. I also want to pay tribute to uh, Griffith's collaborators uh, in, this, in this excellent series, to the, um, the Australian Centre uh, of Asia-Pacific Art at the Gallery of Modern Art, really the, the, um, the Queensland Art Gallery uh, altogether for its, its partnership in this, and I think for acknowledging the critical role of culture in Australia's engagement with, um, with Asia. And just to, to round off the acknowledgements, uh, I want to 
make a special mention of my parents who are here tonight. They don't usually get to come to the events I speak at at Lowy in, uh, in Sydney, so I'm really delighted to see them here as well. Um, I guess I wouldn't be here without them. So. Um, but look, um, as a... As a sometime Queenslander, uh, though an alumnus of the University of Queensland uh, and that somewhat less august institution, uh, the Sunday Mail, where I, I worked once upon a time, um, I am convinced that this state needs a distinct and original platform uh, for a debate on Asia that's too often dominated uh, by, I think, often self-appointed voices in Canberra, Sydney and Melbourne. So I really, really commend this, uh, this series. Now, to the point. The world is changing. Uh, there are historic shifts of wealth and power, as we've heard, among states, especially as China and India regain, not gain, but regain, the wealth, the power and status that go with their massive populations now, a billion plus each. Now, this change should and can add enormously to the sum of human happiness, because after all, it's changing the quality of life for so many people, raising the opportunities to levels that their parents couldn't imagine, but all change brings risks and perils, and this momentous departure from the world that we have all known uh, is going to affect everything about this country, about Australia, everything from the price of food to the risk of war. Now, all nations need strategies to cope with change and not purely in the narrow military sense. One of my arguments tonight will be uh, really to raise the question whether Australia has a strategy, can we follow through on it? What should it look like, a strategy for adjusting to this changing world where China and India become so powerful? Strategy, in uh, the context of what I have to say this evening, is not purely about military power. It's about power more broadly, about marshalling all the elements of a nation's influence and, and wisdom, really, to advance its interests in a changing world. My central argument is Australia needs a comprehensive strategy for what I'm going to call an Indo-Pacific era of Chinese and Indian strength. The disappointing thing is that the short-term uh, fixations of much of this country's political class, and we see that on display every day, uh, are anything but strategic. The 2010 federal election, just take your minds back to that for a moment, did foreign policy feature in that election at all? Uh, it should have been an election about Australia's future, but it was fought in a foreign policy vacuum. Uh, the Labor leadership mess that we've seen has been too much about personality, not enough about policy in my view. Commendably, uh, the Prime Minister has commissioned a policy review for an Asian century, but I worry that in this country such reports are too often a substitute, not a blueprint for action. And the opposition has, uh, to my mind, presented no compelling Asia policy framework of its own. Uh, I guess we're watching this space. Now, I think Australia has about a generation, a 25-year window, to reshape itself, its economy, its society, its foreign policy, its defence force, its external relations, really its resilience as a nation, uh, its ways of thinking to prepare for an Asian century. And I think we're well into that window. Um, a bit like a certain kind of university student uh, who has already used up a lot of their time in bursts of solid, thoughtful work, but lots of denial, distraction, procrastination. I think that's the point Australia's at. Most of the hard work is still ahead. And this will be as much about taking advantage of opportunities as about preparing for trouble. It's not just about threats and risks. It's about opportunities too. And the bottom line is that a, a dynamic Asia in which China and India loom large can be good for Australia, for our economy, our society, even for our security. But we need to learn how to manage it. As these powers rise, as the title of my uh, remarks uh, will suggest, Australia has what I call grand stakes invested in the region's stability. That means 
the stability of China and India within, and there are some interesting developments there at the moment, as well as their impact uh, on the region. The news is not all good. There are some deep security anxieties, as I'll soon illustrate, emerging not just in Australia but within the region more generally. Uh, I guess the fundamental question for us is that this is the first time that this unusual nation, this long fortunate uh, strange nation Australia has been confronted by not one but two Asian great powers rising, rising at, the, uh, at the same time. And I think that uh, it might be time to take a look at what I mean. Here they are. Now what strikes me about this picture of uh, Hu Jintao uh, of China and Manmohan Singh, the Prime Minister of India, is what appears to be their indifference to one another. Uh, and it tells you something about the China-India relationship, a really understudied relationship in international affairs. These are two neighbouring nations with similar basic objectives, think about that, to meet the needs and hopes of the two most populous societies in human history. And yet there's quite a lot of mistrust and indifference in Sino-Indian relations. And that's going to matter to us, uh, because if these two powers don't get on, uh, we're, going to, uh, we, we're going to have to deal with that uh, in our own way. I think for Australia, the rise of China and India is causing tensions, some quite new tensions among our economic and our security interests and our values as a nation. Uh, and I'll give a few examples shortly. Just a few years back, 2009, uh, China overtook Japan to become Australia's top trading partner. That's the first time, uh, as uh, folk like my colleague uh, Hugh White like to say, the first time that this status has been held by a state that is not Australia's security guarantor and not an ally of that ally and that doesn't share our democratic worldview. In recent years, there's been a series of military and diplomatic incidents that have raised questions about how a powerful China might behave in the international system. We'll all be aware of incidents at sea, encounters in the South China Sea and elsewhere, and in my mind, just as important, maybe more so, China's tolerance of violent attacks uh, by North Korea on the South. And I was just... Uh, speaking to uh, Andrew O'Neill today. We were both in Seoul uh, on the 23rd of November 2010 when one of those attacks took place. It really made us realise that what we study is not uh, purely academic, if you know what I mean. Um, now, the potential for this contested Asia in which uh, India and China loom large uh, is posing special challenges for Australia because we've been reliant for so long on an order that's underwritten by American power, by America's strategic presence. I certainly don't think we can talk of what I'm talking about tonight, Australia's future between China and India, without bringing in uh, the United States. President Obama's visit to Australia last November, America's so-called strategic pivot back to Asia, I'm sure you've all heard of that, although I have colleagues in Washington who like to refer to it as, as the pirouette because they're not convinced yet uh, that, it's, um, that it's going to amount to a lot, but uh, let's see. The planned presence of US Marines in the Northern Territory, and that's now more than planned, of course, the first have arrived. All of this reminds us that Canberra continues to rely on the alliance. Our country continues to rely on the US alliance. Now, it's quite right to argue that there could be future big choices between the United States and China in Australia's uh, decision-making, but I would argue that the picture is incomplete if we leave it at that, if we don't bring in the other big Asian powers, but in particular India, uh, the, other, the other rising giant. Now let's see where this is all coming from, and I think economics is at the heart of, of the change uh, that we're seeing, because the new place of China and India in the top rank of Australia's strategic and diplomatic priorities is driven by their economic growth, the scale, the pace. Now this graphic really shows you the future. It's a projection. It's a very uh, 
questionable uh, linear projection. But of course, this is tracking from what we've seen in the past 20 or 30 years. That is the rapid sustained growth uh, in both countries. China since the late 70s, India since the early 90s, growing at between 6 and 10 per cent a year, year on year. And the good news is this has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and to levels of opportunity and well-being and dignity that were unimaginable for their parents. Uh, and you have to sort of think about that before you focus too much on the, um, the downsides. But these figures don't tell you about the inequities and the disruption that comes with this kind of rapid change and the question marks, including environmental question marks, over the sustainability of this long-term growth. Nonetheless, and I know that these are quite, from an Indian or Chinese point of view, optimistic figures, nonetheless, if China and India stay broadly on track with growth of between 6 and 10 per cent a year over the, the coming decades, they will unquestionably be among the big three economies this century, with only the United States as the third one. And this will fundamentally reshape power and influence in the world. Even as this happens, India will remain a considerable way behind China, perhaps 40 per cent of the size of the Chinese economy, but way ahead of any other nation by an order of magnitude. Um, and uh, I think Japan's an interesting example to bring, in, to bring into the discussion at that point. Now, all this translates into military power in several ways. One is that uh, with rising wealth and global interests, you need, or at least countries think they need, uh, powerful militaries to safeguard them. Moreover, a rich country or a richer country can afford a, um, a better funded military. So all this has some basic defence implications, implications on the ability of a state to exert power on another. Now Beijing and Delhi for the first time can avoid uh, really substantial modern militaries already. China is the second, as, as uh, we can see from these figures, China is the world's second largest military spender by an order of magnitude, only after the United States, and growing still at double digits uh, each year. Now remember, just 25 years ago, Australia's defence budget was bigger than China's. Uh, so in the space of a generation, this has fundamentally changed. And now, of course, we're a fraction of the size, and that will continue to be the case. And Australia's defence spending is even half the size of India's. Now, that's fair enough, given the size of, of populations, interests and so forth, but it does require a real change of mindset uh, in our political and, uh, and bureaucratic class. Much could change. Uh, I mean, again, these figures are very straight-line projections and they're, they're, I guess, my own um, rather bastardised combination of um, Goldman Sachs and IISS uh, figures. But they make a point, and the point is that China and India will be two of the three military powers in the world by an order of magnitude. If you want a point of comparison, you look at Japan, which is a substantial military power. We forget that. But unless something radically changes in Japan's military spending or the size of its economy or its, um, I guess, the, you know, the dynamic uh, within Japan, it's going to essentially flatline, uh, and that will again uh, lead to a, a great change in the, the power dynamic. And this isn't just about these countries, of course. We could have put more in, but it would have complicated the, um, the graphic. But the other countries in Asia are all going to respond to this fundamental change, and we're already beginning to see some of this rather nervous, nervous response. I don't think I would call it an arms race yet, but there is uh, an action-reaction dynamic, something that may approach an arms race, and, and Australia's part of that story, of course. Time to bring the conversation back to Australia, because I'm... I guess I want to introduce three or four threads and then try and tie them together towards the end. So the next thread to what I want to say is really about Australia. I want to, 
offer you my own version of Australia's characteristics as a nation and what our interests are, and then let's look at how those interests are going to be affected by the rise of China and India. Now, Australia is a pretty extraordinary country, as we all know, but um, in a geopolitical sense, it's a unique country. It has singular circumstances, some of them very, very enviable. It's the only nation in the world, of course, to have its own island continent, which gives it this exceptional strategic depth, but also vast responsibilities in the maritime domain, enormous areas that we monitor, patrol, claim to police um, with this very small population. Australia has globally important natural resource deposits, many of them here in Queensland, iron ore, coal, uranium, gold, natural gas, you name it. The, the things that the big powers of Asia want and need, Australia has. We also export half or more than half of the food we produce, and that's going to become increasingly important too. You combine this with Australia's high per capita wealth, its stable democratic system, its resilient and multicultural society, and I really believe that is the case, even if we have a small population, and it does make Australia uh, an important player in this region. Australia has a small but advanced defence force. We have the 13th largest uh, economy and the 13th largest military budget in the world even if our current forces and our current diplomatic network is, is rather overstretched. We have a big program of development assistance in the region, which I think does have advantages for Australia's image, its soft power, its reputation. And to top it all off, Australia has this alliance with the United States, which is still the world's most powerful country. Uh, and, and there is a bit of, I think, exaggeration of America's decline in the debate at the moment. The question is, well, two questions, really. Can all of, this, all of these qualities give Australia leverage in dealing with countries of the size and power of China and India as they rise? And secondly, how will that rise affect our interests? Let's translate some of these circumstances quickly into what I will call interests, and some scholars would debate whether these are interests, but let's, let's have a go. I would suggest uh, they include maintaining the nation's independence and freedom from external coercion, if I can use that word. Uh, protecting Australia's people, territory and resources, a very traditional definition of security and of interests. Preserving Australia's democratic system and values and its reputation as a reliable, responsible partner uh, in all forms of international engagement. And that includes Australia's sense of self-respect, I guess. Preserving a rules-based order, not only in our region but in the world, and this has an impact on security and economic issues, for example, freedom of navigation uh, in the South China Sea. And finally, really creating or sustaining a basis for sustainable prosperity in the country, not only through, I guess, the environmental sustainability of what we do, but through, the, uh, I guess, the security of our exports, the competitiveness of our economy. And all of this, all of, the, all of these interests go back to a need to adapt uh, for this changing world because all of these interests are touched by the rise of, uh, of China and India. Now, I want to pivot or pirouette uh, to geography for a moment. So let's just take a look at really where Australia is in the region. Because even the way we define the region may be changing. Now, two decades ago, the big debate was, is Australia Asian? The interesting fresh debate, I think, is what is Asia? What is the definition of Asia in this changing world? Is it still essentially a definition of East Asia and an East Asia that's returning to a China-centric order which it knew in centuries past? Or is our region the Asia-Pacific, uh, which is defined, for example, perhaps by the footprint of, um, of that um, organisation, APEC, uh, 
um, those four adjectives in search of a noun that were, was established back in the 90s, with the United States very much a resident power in this region, and now pivoting or pirouetting back in earnest after the, um, the stupid detour of Iraq and the, um, the tragic detour of um, Afghanistan. Or are Australians now part of a third Asia? And this is what I really want to introduce, uh, and Andrew's alluded to it already, an Indo-Pacific region. Now, this can mean all sorts of things, but in my view, an Indo-Pacific definition of Asia adds India and its maritime neighbourhood squarely into our crucial zones of interest. The logic of this idea, an Indo-Pacific strategic system, not an Asia-Pacific strategic system, derives, I think, from two things. It derives from China's and other East Asian countries' engagement to their, to their southwest across the Indian Ocean, their supply lines, their energy lines that reach all the way to uh, the Middle East and Africa. It also relates to India's growing role as a Pacific power. India is coming into the Pacific uh, economically, militarily, in all, in all kinds of ways. And if you think about it, India always was uh, a country that related to Southeast Asia. If you look at India's cultural ties to Southeast Asia, they're at least as deep as China's, if not deeper. So I think there is an argument that the region uh, can be defined differently. And one special feature I like about this definition is that here at last we would have a definition of Asia that automatically includes Australia. Uh, in my view, that's a good thing. Australia's unique two-ocean geography would make Australia naturally an Indo-Pacific nation. Certainly, Australia's been seeking to rediscover its Indian Ocean identity. Uh, let's see whether that uh, goes all the way, but you know, the, the government has been commissioning inquiries. Uh, there's been a, a study of Australia's force posture that suggests we need to have more of our military on that side of the country. Our export industries, our resource industries are so heavily concentrated in the northwest and so on. Uh, and certainly, uh, the defence establishment here and in other parts of the world are looking at Australia's north and west with fresh eyes. And if the stories about um, surveillance drones one day operating off uh, the Cocos Islands are true, we'll be looking from that part of Australia with, uh, with fresh eyes too. So I want to just put that Indo-Pacific um, idea in your minds for a moment. And now I want to swing to history, uh, from geography to history. So we've talked about the rise of China and India. We've talked about Australia's interests. We've talked about Australia's geography. Now I want to start with the history of our relations with India and China. And I've titled this part of my talk, Getting Beyond Indifference, because we've, over the years, over much of the past few centuries of Australia's existence, one way or another as a, as a nation, um, neglected China and India, neglected our region, and I guess they've neglected us too. Uh, one reason the impact of China and India rising on Australia is so marked is because these interactions are coming up from so far down. We had very little to do with China and India for so much of our national history and even colonial history. The early European settlers here, of course, had a sense of isolation and vulnerability, including fears of much larger Asian powers and populations. Now, there was some early and fruitful contact with China and India, albeit with British India. There are some adventurous individual Australians whose names are not well known enough who played big roles in China and India uh, in the 19th century or early 20th century. Uh, many of you may have heard of George Morrison uh, in China. Some of you, I hope, have heard of John Lang, the um, Australian lawyer and journalist who played a role in mid-19th century India that's not very well known. Australia's first coal exports were to Calcutta in 1799. And of course, tens of thousands of Chinese miners arrived on the gold fields here in the 19th century. 
Now, despite the prejudices of the time, some of those Chinese built successful lives and trading links back to China, which is why I guess it was, it was extra tragic that the White Australia policy did so much damage uh, to these communities and connections and to Australia's reputation. And one thing uh, that I can, I, I can say without a doubt is that the White Australia policy is still uh, having a pretty harmful legacy on Australia's relations in Asia, even now, even, even four decades after the last vestiges were gone. And, and this still has ripples, uh, especially in our relationship with India. Certainly China and India began to matter more to Australia uh, throughout the, 19th, the 20th century with the end of uh, colonial empires. Even so, between the late 1940s, uh, the establishment of the People's Republic of China and India's independence, and the early 1970s, there was very little to show for these relationships. The Cold War was one reason. The closed economies of those countries was another reason. There was lingering political and cultural mistrust. And there was an element of personality as well. Nehru and Menzies hated one another. But in the end, Australia was faster to come to terms with China than with India, which is an interesting question to, um, to untangle. The main point I want to establish for now is that we have started to get there. Both relationships now have substantial economic security and human dimensions, societal dimensions, which includes, I think, uh, the cultural dimension. But there's still a long way to go. Now, let's have a look at where the relationships are headed. I'll comment briefly on the initial impacts of Australia-China and Australia-India relations, because these are still early days in these relationships as, as real serious uh, strategic priorities. And let's see what these impacts mean for the future. Now, some impacts are already plain, as this um, rather familiar image would remind you. Uh, Chinese and Indian resource and energy needs, to, to really feed the needs of those enormous populations, the expectations for a higher standard of living. These needs have become vital to Australian exports, contributing to the resources boom uh, that has... Uh, despite its downsides, has uh, helped insulate us from the economic woes of so much of the developed world. China is now our top export market and our top two-way trade partner. India is moving up the scale. It's our third or fourth largest export market at any given time, and that's a rapid advance over the past decade. India will overtake South Korea, I think, soon to be our third largest export market, and the day could well come when it overtakes Japan to be number two. At the same time, the military power, as I've said, of these countries is growing. They could be partners or perhaps uh, cause complications for Australia, let's see. Um, but there's another dimension I want to mention, and that's the societal dimension, which we'll come to in a moment, because I think that's growing as rapidly as any of these other elements of the Australia-China or Australia-India relationships, and that's going to have its own very powerful impact on where Australia stands in the region. It brings its own challenges as well as, um, as, well as positives. I'll quickly go through a few of these elements in detail. Trade, um, as I've said, uh, now Australia's largest uh, export market and trading partner, that's, that's China. This is growing sometimes at 27% a year. It's massive. A quarter of our exports, iron ore dominates that trade. Um, the Australia-India story is less spectacular but still impressive, and the potential is enormous. Coal is now a very big part of the Australia-India economic relationship, and as Many of you would know um, Indian coal investments here in Queensland are likely to, um, to keep building that. The education side of the Australia-India relationship may have declined a bit in recent years, but it will, it will bounce back, I, I have no doubt, and that's an important part as well. In any case, um, all this, I guess, 
good economic news about Australia's ties with China and India should come with a few warnings. One is um, it means a certain dependence on these two economies, and it's not clear that one of these economies would be a substitute for the other if, uh, if things went wrong, uh, because they have their own very strong trading relationships with one another, for a start. And secondly, what will Australia do if either, all, either of these countries uh, really loses some of their economic momentum, or if what they want for Australia eventually does change and it's not what we can currently provide? For how long are we going to rely on digging and shipping alone in a knowledge age? And I mean that with all respect to my friends from the mining industry. Um, the investment relationship uh, with uh, China and India is also a big story and not quite as visible often as the, um, the trading relationship. Uh, Indian investment levels of Australia are rising fast, as I've said, especially in coal mining and infrastructure. The China story, of course, has been more controversial. Uh, China has gained a profile as one of Australia's fastest growing foreign investors, uh, and mining interests have been a high priority on that list. Now, one of the reasons for the controversy, of course, is the state-owned nature of a lot of the Chinese investment or the intended Chinese investment in Australia and the more demanding approvals process for that under Australian law because it's state-owned. Um, as many of you know, tensions on this front really peaked around 2009, partly around the failed bid by Chinalco to increase its stake in Rio Tinto. But this wasn't an issue in isolation. It was part of a wider challenge, a wider rockiness, I think, in bilateral relations. Everything from the defence white paper, our defence white paper, which was, I think, sold pretty badly uh, in terms of diplomacy to China, the arrests uh, in China of uh, the Rio executive Stern Hu, the um, uh, really the style of Kevin Rudd, I would say. Uh, I think, although his China expertise could and should have been of great value. I don't think his personal style uh, was always the best way to do our diplomacy with China, if I can put it that way. Now, we shouldn't exaggerate the strategic dimension of all this uh, investment, but I do want to point out uh, two things. One, that regardless of the controversies, Australia needs and can benefit from and really must have uh, Chinese and Indian investment uh, in its future. And secondly, the United States is actually still a much bigger investor in Australia than China or India, or the two of them combined. I think uh, we need to remember that when we look at sort of these figures about Chinese investment growing in Australia, it matters, but it's not going to be dominant any time soon. I want to move to the security dimension, uh, which is also interesting and a very mixed story. Now, I've talked about the security uh, fears that the growth of Chinese military power has raised in Asia, but there is another side. China and Australia have an unusually constructive defence relationship, uh, an unusually high level of dialogue for China and a democracy. And there is scope, and there should be scope, to work with the Chinese military on dealing with so-called transnational challenges, disaster relief, counter-piracy, that kind of thing, as this, um, this exercise here might suggest. And it's interesting that shortly after President Obama visited Australia last year and there was so much controversy about his reaffirmation of the alliance and how this would essentially upset China, Australia and Chinese soldiers still went ahead and trained together in disaster relief. Now, it's important to know that this kind of limited cooperation and dialogue is not going to eradicate strategic mistrust. Uh, there are deep reasons why Australia, I think, is concerned about the rise of Chinese power and the, the potential instability this might bring. And this kind of um, 
important but limited activity is not going to make a fundamental difference there. Chinese experts have recently warned that Australia needs to essentially beef up its security relations with China to match its economic relations, but I think this is never going to reach the scale of our security relations with, um, with the United States. But Canberra's defence links with China are valuable precisely because they provide a channel of communication at times of tension, at times when China's security relations with other countries, with the United States, with Japan, uh, is in trouble. And this happened in 2010. Uh, the dialogue between Australia and China kept going even while it was suspended uh, between China and the US, China and Japan. And ultimately, I think Australia is trying to use its defence ties with China to encourage what the whole region wants, which is a clearer picture, clearer sense of transparency, I guess, about Beijing's intentions, uh, what it's going to do with the power that is accumulating. The Australia-India security relationship is a different story. I do think um, uh, it's fair to <coughs> accentuate the positive in that relationship, the positive potential, because I think there are so many convergent interests between Australia and India, including about terrorism. And there's, there's this image from the, uh, the Mumbai terrorist attacks might remind us. Uh, in some ways, Australia, the United States and other countries didn't commence a global war on terror in 2001. We joined a war that India had been fighting for many, many years, which I think many of us had not fully appreciated. Uh, and the deaths of Australians in, for example, Mumbai, reminds us of this, of this uh, tragic common interest. But there are other areas. There's the, the contiguous zone of maritime interest that is the Indian Ocean. I think Australia and India can do a lot more to monitor and, and, uh, and really improve the security of that uh, important body of water. And it's no secret that Australia and India have an interest in together understanding and managing the impact of a rising China on the Indo-Pacific strategic order. But neither country is going to want to be part of what you might call a containment strategy, a term you may have uh, heard a bit too often and which I, I, I would reject. In any case, this partnership between Australia and India that I think we should have has been frustratingly slow to arrive for a number of reasons. Every country in the world, almost every country in the world, is courting a rising India as a partner. So Australia has to sit in a very, very crowded waiting room. We have to be able to offer something quite special. We have a security declaration which was signed under the Rudd government, and that's a good start. Uh, but often the two countries are still failing to see the full potential of the other as a partner. And part of this, I think, was due, was due I'm sorry, to the mistrust that Australian policy on uranium exports to India generated in India until, until recently. But now there is an opportunity to test the limits of the security relationship with India, and I think we should be doing that. We should keep in the back of our minds, of course, that just because India is a democracy, just because India is not China, it doesn't mean that India's rise will always be a stabilising force. We also need to understand how a powerful India might behave in future. And if that is sometimes destabilising, we need to build a relationship now that can help temper some of that, um, that, that, that negative impact. Moving to the human dimension, um, societal links, as I would call them. Uh, diplomacy is nothing without people, and the human side of these relationships, Australia, China, Australia, India, has been growing rapidly. People of Chinese and Indian origin are among the fastest growing communities in Australia. The two largest migrant communities now in this country, other than uh, British and New Zealanders, and I'll let you decide whether you consider Kiwis a migrant community or, or not. Um, but look, this is... I think vital for the Australian economy, vital for cultural diversity that's been so essential to the success of this nation of, uh, of migrants, where one in four was born overseas, remember that? 
the United States is not a nation of migrants, Australia is. Um, one, I think 9% of Americans and 23 or 24% of Australians were born overseas. China is now our largest source of foreign students. India is number two, even though this has taken a bit of, um, a bit of, a, a bit of damage for reasons that we'll talk about in a moment. In tourism too, China is becoming the country's largest source of tourists and India's middle class will put it in the top league pretty soon as well. Increasingly, tourism to Australia will be Chinese and Indian tourism, much less than uh, the European, American, British tourism, even the Japanese tourism we've been familiar with. And in terms of the nature and the composition of Australian society, as Australia engages China and India in the Asian century, it will increasingly be an Australia with a Chinese and Indian face. Now, as I've said, I think this is, this is largely to the good, but there are frictions that will come with this change that we need to be aware of, that as governments and societies we need to try to manage. And the image there of the, uh, the protest, the Chinese protest against the Olympic torch relay in Canberra in 2008 is a pretty stark uh, indication of that. Uh, there will be foreign policy challenges. The very fact of growing social contact across national boundaries will of course lead to consular cases, it will lead to controversies, it will lead to individuals behaving badly, they do in every country, um, and inevitably this will bring political expectations and frictions. There will be political mobilisation of the Chinese and Indian communities in Australia, we have to get used to it. Uh, there's a very strong India lobby in the United States, just as there's a very strong Israel lobby in the United States. And I think the Chinese and Indian communities in Australia will and have a right to, uh, to mobilise. But these two recent episodes I want to quickly touch on hold some clues as to how this might happen and how it might be managed. The Olympic torch relay that I've mentioned um, I think came as a bit of a shock to the people of Canberra to have a protest of 10,000 uh, suddenly appearing in, uh, in sleepy Canberra. Uh, and although there was obviously an element of pride and solidarity in that Chinese protest, Chinese Australians, Chinese students and so forth, there was also uh, uh, an element, a, a more troubling element. There was an attempt, I think, there to drown out the human rights and uh, Tibetan protests on that day. And uh, this was so disturbing as to cause the Chief Minister of the ACT to essentially accuse the Chinese Embassy of orchestrating, uh, orchestrating that rally. These events will, I think, happen, happen again and Australia needs to work out how to, how to manage these kind of activities. This was the first year, incidentally, that the opinion polling done by my institution, uh, the Lowy Institute in Sydney, showed Australian public opinion cooling towards China after three or four years of solid, solid warming. The other example I want to point to, again, you'll be familiar with, the crisis around Indian students in Australia a few years ago. What's different is that I think this was unquestionably a spontaneous uh, protest, and this was really about safety, welfare, educational standards in a, um, I guess, an education industry, if you want to call it that, that grew too fast, uh, too far, too fast, and really wasn't, wasn't managed well, uh, especially by, um, by some parts of government. And the protests against this, against the crimes, against a number of Indian students, became, a, I guess, a, a lightning rod for all sorts, of, all sorts of grievances of a community that had grown very fast in a pretty unfamiliar environment and of which many other Australians weren't particularly, um, particularly aware. Uh, it turned out to be a pretty combustible mix with the Indian media, which basically delivered Australia, uh, I think, the worst publicity any country in the world has ever had, apart from perhaps Denmark uh, in, in the Muslim world with its, um, its, its um, cartoonists uh, offending the prophet. The, uh, if you tried to quantify 
the negative coverage of Australia and the Indian media over these protests, you'd be moving into billions of dollars of bad advertising. Um, so there was a real lesson there for our engagement uh, with a rising India and, and a rising China. And this played on images of Australia as a racist society, even though very few of the, uh, the crimes, I think, uh, were either racist in motivation or even could have, been, could have been seen as that. The silver lining to that incident or to that series of incidents was that at least it forced the governments in Australia and India to start focusing on the relationship, and I think the relationship's actually better, better because of it. But we shouldn't assume that this is the last time we will see uh, these kind of unexpected uh, tensions, including, a, including an element of, of, of clash of cultures uh, in an Australia that is not fully uh, prepared for the rise of China and India. I want to touch briefly on one example, the uh, issue of uranium exports that captures all of these security, economic and societal dimensions. And I'm not going to go into chapter and verse on this, uh, but the fact is whatever you feel about uh, the civilian uranium industry, whatever you feel about uranium exports, um, I can assure you that um, Australia has moved, has adapted uh, in a policy sense on this issue faster than on most issues because it's one area where China and India, for reasons of self-respect, for reasons of energy needs and for reasons of security, uh, would not have countenanced Australia continuing to deny them uh, civilian uranium exports. And in the last five years we've seen, or six years we've seen, moves to export uranium to both these countries, much more quickly with China, much more slowly with India. It's hard to see what the alternative uh, would have been if we're looking at Australia adapting, uh, adapting to the Asian century. But it's going to be a fascinating case study. There'll be a lot of uh, books to be written about, about really the symbolism uh, of, of this change. And certainly it's made a difference in Indian official perceptions of Australia. Actually, as someone who's advocated change of policy on this issue, I should add that um, it doesn't really matter if Australian export uranium never goes to India. It should certainly only go to India under the right safeguards. It was the issue of pride and self-respect, and this goes all the way back to the White Australia policy, that was at stake. It was a sense that we didn't trust India. We thought India was... Uh, in a different category. It was seen in India, rightly or wrongly, as, as discrimination, and I don't think we could have escaped that. So to wrap up, I just want to briefly touch on the strategies that I think Australia will need to deal with all of this, and there's no simple solution here. The question is, going by everything I've just presented, how should Australia respond to this changing region, this changing rise of China and India, its impact on our interests, our geography, and so on? And I'd argue that any strategy, any response by Australia and its government and its governments needs to be multi, have multi strands, multiple strands, multiple threads. It needs to be coherent and it needs to be sustained. And I'd suggest there are a few elements to a successful strategy that are beginning to emerge. The big question is whether our governments can sustain these because of the um, the constant, I guess, short-termism and policy paralysis we see in this country. I'm not too confident that we can. We will need to resource our relations with China and India a lot better than we do at the moment. I'd suggest that the elements of the strategy, uh, let's, let's call it a hybrid strategy, are these. Uh, economic and diplomatic and increasingly human, societal, cultural engagement with both China and with India as well as what you might call a balancing strategy against especially the unknown ways in which Chinese power might be used in the future. Now, if this is done right, especially the engagement side, diplomatic, economic, societal, the trick will be to give China and India a big stake in Australia's security and Australia's success 
uh, because we certainly can't rely on force alone um, to protect our interests. Now, there are arguments about whether getting too close to China in this way in the economic relationship will compromise Australia's security and political choices. Uh, my colleague Hugh White makes those arguments. I think that downplays the role of interdependence, uh, which works both ways. China wants what we need, just as we need, we need to sell, uh, sell these things to China. I think it's not going to be in China's interest to make dramatic decisions about, for example, um, you know, stopping Australian uh, iron, iron ore uh, exports or, or even, or even um, suddenly forbidding Chinese students from attending Australian universities. I think, I, think, I think China has interests in this relationship continuing too and we need to deepen those interests and build more voices and stakeholders in China for this relationship and likewise for India. Another way of enmeshing these countries in the region is multilateral diplomatic forums like the East Asia Summit. This has limits. Uh, but we should still pursue this. But moving to the other side, and there's this wonderful image of um, Obama doing his, I guess, pivot um, with a crocodile, hedging or balancing the, the hard security side, I do think Australia needs uh, a harder edge to the way it engages with powerful countries in its region. And this will probably have three elements. The first is to modernise Australia's own defence force, to make Australia a genuine maritime power. I don't think Australia is or will become an essentially mil militarised country, but Australia has a very small navy and a very weak navy for the kind of interests it needs to protect. Uh, I think it makes sense for Australia to strengthen its navy, as the 2009 Defence White Paper suggested, but we could handle the diplomacy a hell of a lot better. Uh, Sure, carry a big stick, but there's no need to speak loudly, um, especially if your stick's actually quite small, which is at the moment. Um, secondly, a tighter embrace with the United States, but a careful embrace with the United States. Uh, that, I think, at least for the time being, is an important part of Australia's strategy. But the third element, which is the most interesting and often neglected element, is building relations with other Asian powers, including India. And all these three elements of a hedging or balancing strategy can support one another. For example, we shouldn't assume that a closer Australia-US relationship is automatically going to alienate Asian countries, countries like India, and make them take us less seriously as an independent player, because India and most of these countries are also uh, deepening their relations with the United States at the same time. At the same time, there are limits to all of this. I'm not saying that Australia should replace the United States with some Asian ally. India, in particular, is allergic to anything like an alliance. Um, and anyway, I don't think all of this alliance business is about China. Yes, a lot of it is, but I think we're just as likely, actually, we're much more likely to see those Marines in Darwin doing disaster relief activities with the People's Liberation Army than ever fighting it. So, in parting, um, Australia is left with choices, of course, uh, as uh, these speeches always suggest, uh, but I think this is real. What I hope is that China and India prove less... Um, indifferent to Australia's diplomatic charms, as this picture would suggest. I think China and India are going to be courted or uh, encountered by many, many countries, and Australia shouldn't assume it is special. We need to work hard uh, to, engage, to engage with them. I hope I've identified the challenges ahead for Australia. I hope I've identified some of the rudiments of a strategy. I hope you have some questions about all of that. Uh, my own questions for our policymakers are these. Is Australia serious about the idea of an Asian century? Is Australia serious about Indo-Pacific geography? 
How real is the US-China choice or dilemma between Australia and is Australia prepared to weather frictions with China and rounds of Chinese political displeasure at times? Turning to India, how can we turn the societal dimension of the relationship into an unalloyed positive? Because what's extraordinary is that you think about the commonalities of Australia and India, democracy, cricket, we hear all about this. But we haven't done a great job, either country, of translating that into a really close relationship. In fact, sometimes I think cricket doesn't help. Um, and we can talk about that too if you want. I fear that many Australians still understand China a lot better than they understand India, and I think we should understand both. Uh, we need to improve awareness and understanding of both these countries and to raise their understanding of Australia, no question about that. The last question I want to pose is we need to be aware of how China and India will interact with one another, because a lot of what I've said um, will depend hugely on how this relationship develops, and this is one of the least studied, uh, least understood great power relationships in, um, in contemporary history, I think. Uh, will they remain indifferent? Will they become more competitive? Will that become a dangerous competition? Or will India and China find a way of collaborating? And that itself may not always be uh, the best uh, outcome for Australia. Now, democratic India may never become richer than China, and I don't think India should make its priority to be essentially competing with China in a military competition that it can't win. Um, and it would be quite, uh, I guess, debilitating for both nations. I think the challenge for India, which I want to sort of leave you with, is that if India can overcome its many current constraints on development and equity, if it becomes not only the world's first mega-democracy, but also uh, a mega-democracy that really does lift opportunity for most of its population, that will pose really interesting questions in China about why China needs to have the political system it has in order to have the economic success that it has. But as for Australia, will China and India give us difficult choices in the future. Our um, diplomats have recently been asked awkward questions about the territorial dispute between China and India, and I'm not sure they gave answers that satisfied either country, which is, I guess, what diplomats are paid to do. Um, but that might be a taste of things to come if China and India competition gets worse. Look, in conclusion, I think an ideal Australian strategy for this Indo-Pacific age, this Indo-Pacific Asian century, would be to give China the United States and India, the three big powers, I think, of this century, all grand stakes in Australia's prosperity and Australia's security. The problem is that whatever we do, we will have to place some bets on whether there'll be peaceful coexistence among these three powers, and on that, I'm afraid there'll be no certainty. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew, and thanks again to the Griffith Asia Institute for this partnership. It's such an important one for us and so wonderful to see so many people here tonight to hear such a wonderful um, presentation. Um, it was just great to hear such a clear-eyed and complex um, sort of analysis of what's been happening to really put it into a very um, straightforward language and to break it down into all the important points. And it was great for us, obviously, to see the importance of culture and people-to-people -people relationships and societal enmeshment as, as crucial to that. It was also wonderful to hear the, about the complexity and the interdependence and obviously the questions have really flagged how much broader that is. Um, often we hear about these kind of bilateral relationships but it's, of course it's multilateral and um, everything impacts on everything else and 
clearly um, better understanding of the cultures that surround us is, is so important in terms of how they relate to each other and how we can relate to them. That's, of course, a very important part of what we do here at the gallery in, in our programming. So on behalf of all of us here, thank you so much. And um, please give a hand to Rory. Thank, thank you. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts 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 forward